knows the good guys lost Everybody knows the fight was fixed The poor stay poor, the rich get rich That's how it goes And welcome to the Thinking God Podcast My guest today is Scholar Hal Tossing A recently retired professor of New Testament at Union Theological Seminary in New York And he's a lecturer who's lectured all around the country and the world He's one of the authors of After Jesus Before Christianity and the editor of the award-winning New New Testament. He's a United Methodist minister, author of 14 other books, and the new book examines some of the writings from the period which are, at least from a historical standpoint, recent and recently discovered text and the light that they shed on the period of time between the time Jesus died and the time the biblical texts were canonized. He has been featured on a number of national media outlets, including the New York Times, Time Magazine, The Daily Show, People Magazine, Newsweek, NPR and Washington Post and many others and we met for a live visit during his time here for the Anderson Forum of Progressive Theology. Uh, I just wanted to start with uh, if you could tell me a little bit about your own spiritual journey, um, how you came to be a person who researches and writes books such as the New New Testament and After Jesus Before Christianity. How did you how did you start in your spiritual I think I need to say a little bit more about that because I'm um, I'm really multi-vocational. Um, um, so I've always been a pastor. I've always been a professor. And I do a lot of things in between those with the public. So um, how I got into that mix, I think, was that both being an academic and a researcher and being a pastor, they helped each other do their jobs. Uh, so by and large, it seems to me that, I mean, I, I've been an academic for a long, long time, but I began to see that academics were too much in their heads to often hear clearly what people wanted to think through. Um, and, and similarly, uh, often church people were afraid of thinking. And so to be able to think uh, with the way one feels and to think about when, what one talks at the same time has allowed me to go further simply in the conversation I've had with a, a big range of folks. Well, I want to get more into that. Let's, let's rewind even further back. And what are some of your earliest memor memories of uh, understanding of God or spiritual things? What was your upbringing like? Sure. Well, I was raised at 8,000 feet above sea level in the high Rockies of Colorado. So clearly, I think the first experience of God had to be nature and had to be awesome. Um, so beauty... Uh, was a very big uh, way of my assessing the divine. And, and that's so, certainly the beginnings of thinking complexly and thinking deeply about God and myself and, and my um, sister and brother human beings. Um, all that needed a lot of thinking about um, feeling and feeling about thinking. Now, were you involved in church growing up? Or? I was. I was, I was um, as a child, I was a fundamentalist. 
Um, it, uh, we didn't have much else around way up at 8,000 feet, um, at least in terms of, of community. Um, uh, I never really actually rebelled against fundamentalism. Um, I simply grew my way out of most of it. I don't have any anger or interest in blaming uh, fundamentalism, uh, nor do I in terms of the short circuits that, that academics and researchers make as well. So, uh, so I don't consider myself a fundamentalist, but I suspect there's some of it in me all along anyway. And so how did you get from there to, you talked about you started as a pastor. How, how did that come to be? I did not start as a pastor. Oh, I started an as an academic. Oh, okay. Um, that's all right. Um, um, uh, uh, so I, I actually got a very big grant as, an, uh, um, as a graduate student to get lots of degrees um, in religion and eventually in uh, biblical studies. Um, that wasn't quite my idea. Um, I don't know what it was, um, but so I think it was in that regard that I, I had to work hard and think deeply about life itself. And, and so at that point, um, I also learned in graduate school that I needed also to be much better at thinking about feeling and feeling about thinking. And, and there was when I naturally turned out to be um, quite good at, at staying really close to people, about uh, listening, about thinking together about things. And that had a lot to do with what pastors do. Well, do you find that approach is something that I find it remarkable because most of the people I've interviewed and talked to have, have struggled with being way over on one end of either thinking or the feeling side. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, like you mentioned fundamentalism, I was raised in a somewhat fundamentalist and uh, you weren't supposed to feel anything. I mean, you know, if you felt something and it wasn't a feeling good about praising God, then there was something mm -hmm. questionable about it. Mm -hmm. um, do you think that just came naturally to you or do you have influences or people you read or were listening to or? That's a lovely question, Greg. I, um, I do think that it came fairly easily in, in a, a number of realms uh, uh, and I, that I liked being challenged on different kinds of uh, levels. So I, I took to a lot of different challenges in my life, both emotional and uh, conceptual. But I don't think there was an easy um, way in that allowed the breadth that I feel like I enjoy now as a way of being a, a deeper human being and a, a way of, of taking life seriously from the point of view of other people. It, uh, were there significant influences, people that are books or? Oh, sure. I mean, you know, the, the, um, the people that uh, taught me in, in um, life itself, uh, the people that taught me about um, the beauty of, of everything, 
the people that taught me about six different ancient languages, the people that made me stay still to hear the difficulties in people's lives and the possibilities, all of those things that taught me how to do that, and I can drop the names uh, if I want, but it, I guess I would not say that I found myself tearing after anybody, but it was mostly staying close to many people in terms of those who, who taught me. Um, but I, I still know that many of the people that taught me are, um, are not academics either. So for instance, um, much of my scholarship and much of my, my especially my, my pastoring was with people who um, were extremely um, hurt, um, without resources, uh, I'm fairly sure that many of those people were the smartest people I ever met. Um, and so I do not um, think at all well of folks that, that say that just because someone doesn't have any kind of an academic tendency that people aren't really smart. You've been teaching at seminary level for a long time. I have. Over 40 years. And what, what changes have you seen in the students and the way they approach whatever, whatever direction or whatever path they're going to take coming through seminary? Mm -hmm. Great question. Um, well, there are a number of different things going on now. Really, in the last 40 years, I would see the major thing that's happening is uh, the decline of uh, Christianity and the decline of churches. So uh, that really affected all of the students that I had uh, in terms of what it was like to, to try to, to learn things and to, to be close to people's lives. Uh, so I, I, would, I would say that there were a lot of people then that left the study of religion and the study of Christianity behind because of the great difficulty uh, of that. Uh, um, I think now to assess what's going on now with both students and other people within churches and academies, one has to say that the decline of churches and Christianity continues even at a greater clip than we've seen in, in my lifetime, and I'm 75. Um, on the other hand, there are new kinds of Christianity emerging, new kinds of spirituality, and, and I, you ask about spirituality early, or I want to get to that. But I want to say that um, there are lots of really great new things happening in church, in a minority, but more of them. Uh, so so I, I think that it's a great time to think and feel deeply about Christianity um, and about the, the depth of spirit. So, so those things are cooking like crazy. 
um, in ways that are in many ways deeper than I've ever seen. Um, I think that what I know and who I am relationally has a lot to do with me trying to be um, deeper as a spiritual person and a spiritual being. And, and that um, is probably at the heart right now of, of who I am, um, just as I go deeper in thinking and in being close relationally. And the term is overused at this point, but some of what's being referred to, and again, we're going to talk about this in a minute, but the broad brushstrokes of the word Christianity is deconstruction. And many other faith traditions would just be called growth <laughs> and understanding that things change and things. Um, and the last, I guess I was looking at your, your, your work, and over the last maybe 20 years or so, you seem to have shifted more into these new texts and things. Is that right? Is that about the That's right? True. That's true. That's what, true. What was the first uh, step towards that? What, what brought you to that place where you started seeing these other texts? And if I may, I can, I'll talk about the middle ones that were more important okay. to me. Um, but I, uh, when I got my PhD very early, um, um, people, my, my professors didn't teach me anything about the new texts. They were in the best institutions there were, and they thought they were better than the new texts, and they very quickly taught, taught all of us at the senior level that we, sh we shouldn't spend any time on them and that we should, at that point, we should um, just think that they're either stupid or, uh, or that they are um, heretical. Um, and so I would say for at least 15 years of my, my first uh, academic and, and pastoral work, I, I did the same thing that uh, my teachers taught, and I was says, you just, there are many better things to do that. But as I um, began to get a lot more of people in the public sphere that were talking to me, and as I was public, talking to the public a lot, I would say in the um, late 1980s and early 90s, for a good 10 or year more, years more, I basically started hearing on a regular basis in the crowds that I was speaking to. They would come up afterwards and they would say things like, have you read that text that's just been discovered? And I would say to them, you don't need to bother them. Um, and then those people, when I would say that, started arguing with me. And they, the main things that moved me in that regard, because I thought I knew too much, um, uh, was that they said that those texts that are being discovered are, are changing who they are and making them be a deeper person. And so finally, I started reading this stuff. And finally, very quickly, I thought, damn, this is really very important stuff. Uh, I, and before too long, 
I discovered that there were at least 150 new discoveries since the 1850s. There have been more, more, more new texts discovered in the last 150 years than in the previous thousand years. Um, and, and then I realized that there were a couple more ancient um, languages that I needed to, to learn. Um, this Coptic, which just drove me crazy. I, I, I mean, I was, I was over 50 when I started my Coptic, and I realized it was the most important thing uh, for me to learn um, uh, in terms of these new texts, because so many of them were, were written in Coptic. Um, so so um, it was just me not being so stubborn and me listening more carefully than I had been that got me there. And um, and I did I did know how to read stuff um, for for the, the for what what they mean and 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 I and now I yes now I'm doing that because I think it makes it's one of the key ways to make all kinds of people Christians and beyond um, um, deeper people. Let's just jump in. Uh... In your book, A New New Testament, you sort of move beyond the traditional orthodox dogma to expand understanding of material that was not part of that canon. Um, what do these writings contribute to understandings of what later came to be known as Christianity? I think we don't know for sure about that uh, yet. Um, because from my point of view, that would be a plus and a minus anyway. That is, I would say, what's going on with those new texts First of all, is we haven't gotten deep enough into a bunch of them yet to know exactly. But secondly, um, so far in the, the good 30 years that I've been at it with them and alongside of, of biblical texts, um, probably things that help Christianity don't necessarily always help everybody. And so right now I say that there are some texts that we really know are good in certain degrees and we don't know in other. We know that fun, some of the texts take to task Christianity in a very helpful way that makes Christians grow if they can. Um, uh, so, um, I think that by and large, I would say that most of the texts I see as profoundly helping a wide range of people, and I would say a wide range of, of, of Christians. How am I doing on that question? You're good, you're good. And I guess that kind of, my next part of that thought was, were there any surprises in those texts, things that you were surprised to find? All over the place. No, I get my socks knocked off regularly, all the time. And I, there, I mean, I'm, I'm talking tonight about texts that I thought I had down with this new book that we put together. And in the last three or four days, I'm cooking on that front in ways that I've never cooked before. Um, so, so yeah, no, th I mean, Think of it this way, so most biblical texts are uh, almost 2,000 years old. 
um, these are generally known for between 50 and 150 years. Um, we're still, I'm still learning things about the regular old Bible. Um, so there's just a lot more um, that is right at hand. And, and the frustrating thing is, so the, the rats that took all of those texts from the Middle East and, and North Africa and have them stuck in some university basement or museum basement, and we haven't even gotten to them yet. Um, those, we, we need those texts in ways that are like we need our grandmothers and, and a, a good new jazz singer. Well, and, and the technology is there to share them without releasing them. Now, that's the sad thing. They can yeah. be lost in any unfortunate incident internationally. Well, if you know, for instance, um, the, tr the crazy thing that happened to the Gospel of Mary um, when it was basically found right before the 20th century. And then it took more than 50 years for it not to be ruined uh, in a couple of, of plumbing um, problems, a couple of um, World War One and World War Two things. Um, uh, and, we, and, and so we only got to start working on that um, 60 or 70 years after it had been found. We mentioned surprises and you said that all throughout. Were there anything specific you can think of? Like you were, you know, you, you talked about when you were coming up in, and I know my seminary experiences were similar. Was, you know, you don't have time for that. You know, mm -hmm. you need to concentrate on this. Were there things you were surprised to find when you began to study and research these, some of these documents? I mean, specific things? Sure. Um, I would say the first thing that had happened to me in my first 20 or 30 years uh, studying primarily the New Testament is that I realized that most of those texts had been under, um, under uh, achieved and, and the, uh, people had put them in boxes and we hadn't learned most of what we could learn from them. That's similar now for almost everything. But let me give an example. So for instance, the Gospel of Mary that I was just talking about. Well, so that's the first gospel we have that where, which has a primarily um, female lead character. Um, we assumed that that couldn't happen. Now we know that that can happen and we need to assume that that would happen more. Uh, uh, and, and yes, I'm still going down those rabbit holes all the time, and in some cases, finding deep human um, efforts by women scholars and women leaders that, that we didn't even look for in that regard. This is kind of, Combining the two things we were just talking about, why did it take so long to find some of these things? Oh, it was it was not nobody's problem um, or or fault. Um, uh, it, there were two things that happened that were just random. 
um, that br broke everything loose. The first thing was that um, if you have papyrus um, uh, and that has been around for, let's say, 1,700 years, um, if it's in the general Mediterranean area, um, it's gone. It's simply decayed. So we don't have it anymore. However, if we happen to be in North Africa and the same piece of papyrus were there or is there, it's completely, almost completely, um, still there, easily re readable. Uh, so, so that's the first thing that happened. <laughs> a bunch of papyri ended up in, in North Africa, especially Egypt is where we've looked. I'm sure there's more where we haven't looked. Um, the second thing is that in the 19th and early 20th century, it's the first time that Europeans had enough money to take vacations in the larger Mediterranean, and especially the larger North Africa. And so, like other rich people in Europe, Bible scholars <laughs> took vacations <laughs> in North Africa for the first time. And, and, um, and they found stuff in, in marketplaces. And all of a sudden, it, and they would find out that it, it, they found something that had been 1,500 years old, for instance, um, uh, just because um, uh, they had a vacation. That then, of course, then they go back home to their university and they get up. So, for instance, uh, there's a, a, a great group of guys who went on vacation in the late, 19, uh, the late uh, 1800s, and they um, went back to Oxford and Cambridge and said, listen, we know that there's a place down in Middle Egypt that, that was an ancient city. Can we, we can, can we send people for 10 years? and find stuff down there, they went and they found so much and they had it all go back to Oxford and Cambridge um, that they, by the, after a couple of years, they gave a, had a team that really basically um, would take care of everything that they brought home until they finished it. So there about 10 people saying, okay, I'll, I'll spend my life on that. Right now, that team is still working and has, found, has, has worked through 10% of what they brought home. They're in that 10%, two new Gospels have already been found. And 90 are yet to be looked at. And they're working as hard as they can. So there is no fault on anybody except the bigger fault that it should be Egyptians doing this work. Um, uh, and that's complex, complexly not happening. 
That's remarkable on a couple of things. One, that there is ever a time when there were well-heeled Bible scholars who could send teams to countries. <laughs> oh, yeah, for no. Can no. you imagine if you'd gone to your faculty <laughs> dean and said, I need to send a group for 10 years to Egypt or something? <laughs> <laughs> well, I did something like that um, regularly at the Union Theological Seminary in New York for, for almost 20 years. No, I, I no, no. So there are people still doing that. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Uh, let's break down a little bit some from the book After Jesus for Christianity. Um, what does the traditionally historical record that's been used, what, what are the traditionally accepted historical records that you and I were taught in seminary and the, uh, about the early adherence of Jesus? What did they miss in some of the things, documents you found, or in some of the writings y'all research are doing? Hmm. I think that uh, I think that probably not very much about Jesus has been lost. Um, the the Jesus scholars of the last seventy five years have been doing stunning jobs. They still have yet to do, but it's not because they haven't found enough. It's because we haven't figured out what it really means. Um, uh, so I would say it's more the larger set of questions, answers, and thoughts, and feelings um, that about what life means that is at hand in this. But that's the same thing, frankly, for the Bible. Um, it's, it's not that the Bible's so great about Jesus or, or Elijah or anybody like that. Um, that's good stuff. But um, what those texts do is make, give an aliveness and a depth to, to what ha is happening that, um, that we can work a long time at. And that's the kind of stuff across the board. That, that the new texts have. Now, I wouldn't want to say that there aren't some jerky texts that have been found recently, um, but uh, no more than jerky texts that have been in the Bible. Um, so, so I love the Bible. I love this stuff. It's because it makes us alive. You mentioned the scholarship for the last 75 years. Do you see, since you, you're a professor, you just retired, right? I, I, well, about three and a half years ago. Okay. That, that's, my that's wife says it's five and a half years ago. But anyway. my, my son teaches me, he says everything we talk about, I tell him it's about eight years ago. He said that was 20 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, the, uh, do you think there are significant numbers of young people that are going to be willing to devote their lives to this kind of scholarship? Because it seems like in a lot of areas, scholarship is declining. Hmm. Well, oddly enough, you... You really have a great point, but oddly enough, the problem right now is the declining of churches because the funding for good biblical and beyond biblical thinking and research, most of that funding comes from people who are Christians and uh, wanting to to learn more, uh, so um, yeah, there's um, that's that's the main problem um, because 
there are there are now so much of, of so much of the public really knows about how much has come in the last 150 years. There, they are, there are young and old people alike that are ready to spend the rest of their lives doing this. And um, there's just not enough money right now. Um, I, I mean, so I would say right now that there, we have, we have, Right now, I would say we have 500 jobs that really need to be done, that can't be done because the amount of biblical scholars is declining. And, and most of them don't care anyway about this new stuff. And it's interesting and it's ironic too that uh, the churches that seem to be spiking even in all these drops are the ones who claim to have the most allegiance to the Bible, but they don't fund anything <laughs> that's related to the Bible. Hmm. I, I, I think you're a step ahead of me. I'm not sure. I, I, I don't know about that because I do know that a number of the, the academics that are um, much more conservative than I and much less interested in some of these texts um, are giving away a fair amount of money for everything in in ways that that have helped us. How do your academic brethren that, that don't follow what you're doing? How do they respond when you do you have good discussions with them about it, and they just not interested? Or I I guess I would say by and large they're doing good jobs on what they're doing, but the problem is that it's the, it's the same story that I did such a bad job on. I kept saying this stuff isn't worth anything and didn't read it. As soon as I read it, I, I started learning how important it was. So I would say, um, yes, colleagues that want to sit down to me and talk about it, even if they're, it's not on their agenda, that 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 helps some. Um, you know. And I think what I was referring to earlier is the, the word church is such an umbrella all-encompassing. I, I did some stories about churches over 20,000 and kind of looked at their budgets and stuff. And the, you know, mm. most of it's very temporal, the very next week's kind of 90-day strategic plan kind of spending as far as that. Let's talk about the title of that book, After Jesus Before Christianity. Uh, you documented some of the groups that found uh, that followed Jesus, and they used a lot of different titles. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. Um, the, the main thing that happened um, for the larger frame of reference was that even though on some level most scholars knew that the word Christian more or less didn't exist for the first 200 years, um, that this is probably the first large uh, range research project that decided that we would take seriously the fact that, um, that whatever was going on in the first 200 years after Jesus uh, uh, needs to be thought through 
not with Christian words yet, because those words weren't Christian words. Um, and so whatever we need, whatever we can learn from them, the first thing we had to do in the 10 years that we studied, 20 of us for just 10 years of, of really a lot of work, um, 66 papers written, um, what we had to learn was to say, um, what, do, what do these texts, both in the Bible and beyond the Bible, um, they're all basically non-Christian. There are three times in the entire New Testament the word Christian is used. But everybody uses the word Christian to interpret it all. Um, so that's the first thing that, that is opening our, our, our minds, and that's what this book has done over and over again already in these first seven months, is that we are breaking open new territory. And, and the second thing that it has broken open has to do with the last 30 years of feminist scholarship in which we've got a bunch of us, uh, men and women, um, being, um, being scholars of feminism and being scholars of gender. Um, we've started seeing how much we haven't learned about what, what we now call gender bending, uh, about the character of those first 200 years. So for instance, now we were able to say one of the biggest things that happened in the first 200 years was that what it meant to be gendered was changing deeply during those 200 years. And that there were new kinds of genders then breaking open what it meant to be related to God and to one another. So those, I would say, those are the two really big ones. But then on the other hand, there, I, I, just this afternoon, I was uh, making sure that I remembered the 12 other discoveries that happened in this research. Um, and and that, that had a lot to do with the fact we had never thought that basically almost everybody who was a part of one Jesus group or another, um, very quickly, whether they're, no matter who their mother or father was, claimed that they belonged to the people of Israel. But the groups themselves, just in my quick survey of the book, were not homogenous at all. These were these groups were. Right, absolutely. Very, very different. And, absolutely. And, and they had some unusual names they called themselves too as well. You want to talk about that? Yeah, well, uh, uh, just from where I started, when you look at what the people of Israel were doing in those two centuries, they were not on the same page either. They had lots of different what it means to be the people of Israel. So one of the main things that happened was that, that basically... Um, the people of Israel were a really wide open, welcoming character in that time. 
And, and oddly, the Christian crowd says they were the ones that re rejected things. And it's simply not the case that what they, they learned so much to be, and I'm not using the word Jew because that word wasn't used yet, but the people of Israel were learning very strongly uh, how to be on different pages and still um, be together. How has it benefited you working with other scholars on this work? I mean, what, what have you gained from all this? Well, so we, we were the West Star Institute. That is an institute uh, that's about, about 30 years old that does only one thing, and that's group projects. Because, and the reason we do this is because, by and large, the academic treat is to say, be a, a lone ranger scholar on your own. So we only do seminars um, that work together for at least a decade, together. And we always don't say who wins, we say, okay, we're gonna vote on this. And we're gonna simply what we can understand together, we will. So. I want to say that we are a minority in the academy to say it's really a bottom line to think together about this. And, um, and that is, we did it again. Um, and it wasn't that we were the smartest, it was just that we plotted along doing work keenly with one another and listening to each other. As you've spoken in lecture halls and universities and churches, what has been the response from people? What kind of feedback are you getting from people on, on your book and on this, these, these concepts we're talking about? Mm. Well, I know that um, what HarperCollins sort of say, thinks is that nobody's hating it as much as they want it. Well, that, yeah, that, yeah. that is, in other words, that doesn't, that, do, that doesn't, that doesn't, um, uh, uh, sell as many books. Maybe, I don't think that that's, uh, actually the HarperCollins people are, are pretty good about that, but they have been surprised at how much this book is selling, but how little it, for instance, the Jesus Seminar was on the front page of Time Magazine 35 years ago all the time because um, they were having so many um, attacks on it. Um, there hasn't been that. I think that will come, and I think that there'll be also more people who will be um, uh, just wanting to dig in more on what this is. We, you know, we only had 200 years, and we've got the next seminar going to take the next 200. Well, yeah, we need to get some protesters out for some of your things. Jose Williams used to talk about there aren't any signs, there's nothing going on. No, that, it's, I, I was, um, I and my, and my partner um, wrote two books about 25 years ago and were bought, brought up by our denomination um, for, on heresy. And that took about seven years for, for us to, to get a national um, heresy hunter Pro set of groups 
coming at us to to finish off. We, we, we were not called heretics eventually, which might be a bad thing, might be a good thing. Um, but at any rate, uh, I, I, no, I, I've, I've lost enough of, of my life to people that went after me that I have mixed feelings about that. What denomination was that? Um, I, I think I would say right now. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> Don't want to start it anymore. No, no, it's not, I'm not afraid of anything. Oh, okay. Um, I, Speak I, kind I, is what you're saying. Um, no, it's a, it's as in many institutions like that, they're all falling apart. I got you. Well, we, we've talked about the fact that the, those, those 200 years, they certainly didn't put any, any priority on marketing. <laughs> so <they were laughs> random groups there. How, how does your work, um, encourage or play out in the lives of an average person who's interested in spiritual things, Christian, or at least Jesus friendly? How can what the things you're talking about and writing about here, um, just play out in the lives of somebody who's interested in this? I think they're kinder, they're deeper, um, they're uh, more relationally uh, ready to engage. Um, I wouldn't, I don't, I don't think I would say they're more Christian or less Christian. Um, I think it depends on what in what is at stake in their own lives and I would want to say these these new things going on can help most people who are struggling to be better people to be more thoughtful to care more are we reaching a, a tipping point where maybe it's time to take a page from those first 200 years and kind of phase out the use of the word Christian. It's been added as a modifier for so many things for so long. Hmm. Um, Thanks, that's a good question and a hard one. Um, in the 1990s, I um, um, had hard times being a Christian and I decided that the best thing for me to do would be to, to call myself a post-Christian. Um, because I knew that I couldn't not be a Christian, um, but maybe I could say that, that that would be, it would be better to just say a part of me is like that again. Um, that lasted about four and a half years for me because in the meantime we had other things going on Christianly um, that said uh, some groups were wanting to kick out people from being Christian um, and take over a, a certain kind of Christianity. And so I thought, no, I, I think it's probably better if I just hold up the more complex kind of life I'm leaving, uh, leading and, and, um, and that um, the word Christian probably um, can have some use. So I'm, I'm no longer a post-Christian, I'm just a, a, a Christian um, for better or for worse. Do you have any personal spiritual practices that you practice regularly that are important to you? Sure. Would you mind sharing some of them? Well, um, the one that I'm mourning most in losing was the one that I, um, I, I went for almost 20 years on the train um, from Philadelphia to New York to teach my seminary class. And when I got into New York, 
um, I got on the, on the subway and I learned that the, the Gospel of John um, has Jesus saying, I'm in you and you are in me. And so I started and did this for almost 20 years. As I was sitting there on the subway, I found that I was looking across, almost just like you and I looking across at each other, um, the, a kind of humanity that I'd never experienced before. There were so many diverse people. And so I just said to myself every morning for 25 minutes, I looked in some people's eyes and I said, I'm in you and you're in me and we're in God. I'm really sorry that I don't get to do that every day. There's not, not, a, there's not that kind of a subway in Philadelphia now. And this final question I ask all my guests, when's the last occasion that you can think of that something made you laugh out loud? Um, this morning. Um, uh, uh, this morning we were walking down uh, Anderson um, uh, in the morning, my partner and I, and um, and we we uh, started laughing at at how different it was um, to be in Anderson than it was in Philadelphia, and and we were laughing at ourselves as to what we missed when we weren't in Anderson. I always enjoy talking to somebody who's put the years in to become a scholar and continues to have a passion and enjoy their work. At the West Star Institute, you can find out more about it online, and you can find any of his books on Amazon. Uh, so just you can just search, and you can find all the books he's involved in, and you can do a Google search on the West Star Institute if you're more interested in that. And that will do it for this edition of the Thinking God podcast. Join me again next time when my guest will be Frank Schaefer, talking about his new book and about his life growing up from Labrie to Hollywood to his current situation as a grandfather. No one in front of me and nothing behind. There's a woman on my lap and she's drinking champagne. That white skin got assassin's eyes. I'm looking up into the sapphire tinted skies. I'm wild dressed, waiting on the last train. Standing on the gallows with my head in the moon. Any minute now, I'm expecting all hell. People are crazy and talks are strange I'm locked in tight, I'm on a rage